This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Book of Equanimity, Case 2. Emperor Wu asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the ultimate meaning of the holy truth of Buddhism? Bodhidharma replied, vast emptiness, no holiness. The emperor asked, who stands here before me? Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. The emperor was baffled. Thereafter, Bodhidharma crossed the river, arrived at Shoran, and faced the wall for nine years. In other versions of this uh, story, the emperor uh, asks a third question. He begins by uh, saying, as emperor I have built many temples, endowed monasteries, spread Buddhism throughout China. What merit have I acquired in doing all of that? And Bodhidharma replies, no merit. So the emperor gets to ask three questions and doesn't understand Bodhidharma's answer to any of them. Usually, um, in these koan collections, we're used to the case being resolved with the monk being enlightened by the teacher's words. But here we have a complete therapeutic failure <laughs> but rather than uh, just see the emperor as uh, a student and a rather self-important one at that, who doesn't get it, uh, who just gets to deliver these uh, straight lines to Bodhidharma. I think we need to um, try to see the dialogue in another way. Uh, primarily to see the two characters, the emperor and Bodhidharma, as representing two aspects of ourself. And as in many koans, our task is to resolve the apparent opposition or contradiction between the two halves. 
in this dialogue as it's presented to us, we're left with an unbridgeable gap. Bodhidharma giving this presentation of absolute truth, or even truth that precedes absolute and relative. And the emperor being this figure of worldly accomplishment and worldly merit, as we usually understand it, but who doesn't comprehend. And they're left with this unbridgeable gap that it's our job and practice to heal in ourselves. And although we might like to identify with the depth of Bodhidharma's wisdom, I think our practice must begin by acknowledging our much greater affinity for the emperor and how the questions that he asks uh, are not uh, ridiculous questions. They're really questions that we are all preoccupied with in our own fashion. But like the emperor, we might not recognize an answer when we, we hear it. The emperor, in some ways, is a model lay student. He is, even though he has stayed in the world, is not a monk, he has done everything he can that he knows how to do to promote Buddhism in the kingdom. This is certainly a worthy and great accomplishment on his part. He really has tried to be devout and tried to foster the spread of Buddhism. He's trying to answer a question that we all ask ourselves. How are we going to integrate our understanding and practice with Buddhism with being lay people in the world, holding down day jobs? We mostly don't have to hold down the day job of emperor, but we've, you know, we've got our day job, and we've got to try to figure out what it means to be a, a Buddhist and have a day job. And he asks, what is the ultimate meaning of Buddhism? We need to ask that if we're going to practice it in our lives. <clears throat> Bodhidharma's vast emptiness, nothing holy. The way we usually express a version of that is through the idea of no gain. That there is nothing to fix, nothing to accomplish. And I particularly try to express that in a psychological 
sense in which we don't have to improve ourselves or fix ourselves or remove any underlying defect or fill in any kind of deficit. That our practice is about experiencing an underlying wholeness, an underlying perfection and joy that is part of our lives regardless of their content. But like Bodhi's Dharma, Bodhidharma's answer, this is very deeply counterintuitive to most of us. And yet we have to figure out what does it mean to practice without turning it into a version of self-improvement. In the emperor's day, you could see the split in terms of sacred and profane. What does it mean to try to live a more and more holy life? Am I, can he be devout? Can he be holy by sponsoring Buddhism in the kingdom? And Bodhidharma tries to undercut that whole dichotomy between the ordinary and the holy, as the emperor understands it. Similarly, we don't have in our culture the same understanding of merit that I think was very important in the Chinese and Japanese culture of those days, where merit really was karmic merit and the accumulation of merit that would reverberate through past and future lives. And yet we still have to ask ourselves what is worth doing? And why do we prefer something done well to something done badly? See, at the level of the absolute, there's no differentiation, no distinction. So why do we prefer a piece of furniture that has been handcrafted, carefully made, mortise and tendon joints, carefully sanded and polished, why do we care that all that care and attention has gone into an object? Is it more valuable than a $5 plastic chair you pick up at Kmart? Why do we think so? Right? Are we entitled to have a preference to find more merit in one than the other? At one level, no difference. Another level that matters very much, the difference of care and attention does matter.
Shoko used to say that we, the core of our practice was learning to suffer intelligently. Another way of saying that is that we need to learn to desire intelligently. And when we desire intelligently, it means that we find a way to love and cherish the people and things of our world. We don't treat them all as empty. We don't treat their, their life and their suffering as empty. We allow to bring tears to our eyes. We allow the attachment and love of others to be at the core of who we are. See, all of that in some sense could be wiped away by Bodhidharma's answers. Right? And if you're just sitting in a cave for nine years, desiring intelligently doesn't seem to come into play very much. But if you're in the world, if you're with other people, if you're living a life, how do you desire, how do you connect, how do you attach without greed, without trying to control other people in order to not lose them or lose their love? You have to learn to attach, to desire intelligently, to hold on but hold lightly. We need to be able to value and cherish things, like the well-made chair. Hanging in the Zendo today is a scroll portrait of Bodhidharma that was painted by Soen Shaku, who was the first Zen master to come to America. He came here in 1893, invited to speak at the World Parliament of Religions. He brought a young monk with him, uh, D.T. Suzuki, as his translator. And some years later, I believe around 1905, he was invited back to give, over the course of a year, a series of lectures across the country on Buddhism that are published in a little book, uh, Zen for American. A very interesting figure. Um, but to own a scroll like that, which is perhaps a hundred years old, worth a lot of money, it's a very Emperor Wu thing to do. <laughs> well, We could just have a Xerox of it, you know, a reproduction of it. Does it matter that we have the original? Is there something about having something that we value and cherish that is legitimate right? in this world of impermanence? You see, I think if you grow up uh, exposed to nothing but what's available in a shopping mall, what's mass-produced, 
what's reproduced, what's machine-made. There is some merit in cherishing objects that are unique, that are handed down, that were made uniquely by an artist that uh, could not be reproduced by anyone else. But it will pass away. We have to know what it means to cherish it, but be able to let it go as well. Shoen Shaku uh, was, like I said, lived at a very interesting juncture uh, in the history of Zen. Uh, his teacher, Kozen, who I only know a little bit about, uh, was active just after the Meiji uh, Restoration in which the whole fabric of uh, monasticism in uh, Japan was uh, changing. Monks were ordered to marry. There was a whole new emphasis on Western ideas and the uh, importation of Western uh, universities, studies. And, uh, Kosen was uh, one of the first to set up a uh, zendo in Tokyo uh, particularly for lay people, uh, men and women sitting together. And he had his students, uh, intellectuals and artists and students from these new Western-style universities. And so Shaku <coughs> came out of that period. And when you read his talks, they came to America. They're full of quotations, not from the Bible and from Western literature and Western philosophy. Very much actively trying to engage a new audience in a new time when everything else was uh, in flux. And in a way, he's very much a Bodhidharma figure for Americans. He's the first Zen teacher to come here, the way Bodhidharma was the first Zen teacher to come to China. And he left behind two students, uh, D.T. Suzuki and Yogen Senzaki, who each in their way very indirectly uh, caused the Dharma to begin to permeate into, into the culture and set the stage for a next generation of uh, teachers who were able to stay in established centers. But it was very unclear what form any of that would take. And the whole notion of training lay students or coming to talk to Americans at all was, uh, was very novel, very unclear how that would pan out, if anything would come of it whatsoever. And we're still working out the answer to that. We're still trying to figure out how do you put these different forms of life together? How do you put together the insight of Bodhidharma with the life of a lay student? Now I think 
as I said, I think we have to understand these two figures as aspects of ourself. And we have to see the way in which too much of the time uh, the dialogue in ourself doesn't end a lot better than the dialogue does in case two. Uh, we just don't know how to put the two together. Uh, and I don't think it's you know, a very good answer to say, well, 95% of the time I'll live out in the world as the emperor, but you know, 5% of the time I'll go off to Sashin and I'll live like Bodhidharma. You know, I'll, I'll play at being a monk. Right? And hope that one way or another they will um, trickle into each other. See, even worse, I think, what happens is that we, we feel that the two sides of ourselves, uh, if we think of it as the world of our daily life or the world of desire and this spiritual world, are somehow in deep conflict. That they don't just not comprehend each other, but they contradict each other. Uh, and that they're at a war with each other so that we don't know which is going to win out, right? Our daily life or our spiritual practice. And we feel they're in competition for our time and our energy. How do we decide how much time to take away from our lives to go on session or to practice on a daily basis? Are they fighting with each other or not, right? See, our task is really to try to figure out how to not just make peace between these two, two things, but to really see them as two halves of a whole. D.T. Suzuki, when he came to this country later, said he had a great realization contemplating the Japanese expression the elbow does not bend backwards. See, the idea of that is the elbow only bends inwards, bends one way. Is that a limitation of the elbow? Okay. Is it a defect that a really good elbow would bend both ways? Right? It's sort of a design flaw that we're stuck with. See, instead, it's a matter of seeing the particularity, the, what we would, can think of as a limitation, rather as a definition, a part of what we intrinsically are. And freedom is not a question of being able to do something, to do anything whatsoever, but to fully function within our design and our capacity. Right? The, the full freedom and functioning of an elbow takes place in bending inward, not, not outward. Now I think that we have to find an equivalent of that understanding about lay practice. We have to be able to find a way to really see 
our practice fully and completely expressed in the life that we're actually leading. Say the fact that we are not going to go sit in a cave for nine years or the fact that we're not going to leave home and be monastics or leave home and live the life of homeless bhikkhus, that is not a limitation. Right? It's the equivalent of the elbow not bending backwards. That is not our life. And the life that we have is not an imperfect version of some other life. That's the thing we really have to settle deep into. And it's the danger of stories like these with Bodhidharma, where we, instead of making it a story of aspiration and clarity, we make it a kind of ideal that we beat ourselves up with. I'll never be the real thing like that. Right? A real monk, a real Buddhist would do X, Y, and Z. But I, as a lay person, am always destined to live out this sort of half-ass, watered-down version of the real thing. Right? That's the great koan of lay practice. To really experience it as the real thing. Not a version of something else. You have to wholeheartedly, completely believe in the completeness of this practice, just as we do it. It's not defined by somebody else. There's no clear right way, wrong way to do it. But it has the potential to be complete. See, the great koan collection, Mumon Khan, means the gateless gate. Gateless gate means you can enter the way anywhere. Even here. Even now. Even like this. The great dualism in our lives as lay people is to imagine this divide between us and the real thing. To feel that the gate is a monastery gate. Isn't the gate right here? We have to find how to put together Bodhidharma and the emperor, lay practice and a full realization of the way, which has to really begin with a deep faith that that's possible. See, that that A teacher has to embody the practice for students. And that embodiment does not necessarily mean looking like some idealized version of enlightenment. 
the great gift that I'm giving you all, whether you realize it or not, <laughs> is I am nothing like Bodhidharma. <laughs> But one way or another, I did realize this way. Right? I was able to pass through that gateless gate, make my life a life of practice, make it something I can convey to you here and now. Right? It can look like this. <laughs> it's the good news and the bad news. <laughs> that in a few years we will see the full realization of the Dharma looking like you, like you, like you.